Listening to the Through the Bible Studio series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, in Luke chapter 16, the entire chapter, even though it breaks down into a couple of different sections, focuses on stewardship of our earthly resources using them in an eternally faithful uh, way. And when it comes to this particular subject, you know, the way that we use our money, our wealth in this world, uh, the words of Jesus from John 8, verse 36 come to mind. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I think that one of the last and final areas of slavery in so many uh, believers' lives is the area of their finances. It's so easy for us to slip into covetousness and to slip into greed, no matter where we are on the spectrum of wealth, whether we're impoverished or would be considered wealthy in every culture on earth, uh, we so easily can slip into a covetous heart. But Jesus Christ can set us free even in that last and final bastion uh, of uh, sin. So Jesus here, of course, in this section of Luke's gospel, is preparing his disciples, encouraging them, discipling them, teaching them, giving them uh, many truths. And here in verse 1, he illustrates the truth that he wants to communicate with a parable. It says there in verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer uh, be manager. So what you have here is a very uh, simple kind of analogy or parable from Jesus. You have a, a rich man who hired a manager or a steward, a household manager who would basically oversee all of his affairs, run his uh, staff for his home and whatever else the staff needed to do, if he, if he had farmland, things like that. And so the manager was running sort of the, the show. And what we're going to discover here is that the rich man had great uh, assets in the form of land, more than likely, and the manager would basically interact with those who were leasing out the land from the rich man and work out accounts uh, with them. Here, the rich man hears that his manager that he's hired is being unfaithful. It doesn't say what he was doing, but it says uh, that he was wasting his possessions. So we don't know exactly what that means, but he hears about this and he tells the manager to turn in the account of his management. The manager in Jesus' parable said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill 
and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write uh, eighty. So this manager is very clever, although he's evil. But what he does with his in, in his clever mind is that he says to himself, Okay, well, after I'm fired, uh, I can't work with my hands. I don't have that kind of background. I don't have those skills. And I'm ashamed to beg. So what will I do? So he goes to some of his master's debtors, and he basically reduces their bill by great amounts. And the plan, basically, is to go back to these people later on and say, hey, you know, I've been fired, uh, and can you provide for me and take care of me? Uh, remember how well I treated you when I was in my previous position the, that I was fired from. So he's, what, what is he doing? He, in a cunning way, is preparing for his financial future by being very cunning in the present uh, moment. Now, the master, verse 8, commended, Jesus said, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that the master commended the manager for what he did. No, he referred to it as dishonesty. However, he said that's clever. He's shrewd. He was discerning. Uh, that was a, 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 an insightful trick that that man just pulled over uh, on me. Then Jesus gives his commentary on the parable. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So here is what Jesus is saying. It's very simple. He's not saying to his disciples, hey, you need to be unrighteously shrewd with your money. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying, though, is, Look, the people of this generation have figured out how to handle money. Uh, they're more shrewd in, their, in dealing with their own generation than so many believers are. But what we should be as believers are people who, with our unrighteous wealth, that's what Jesus calls it. And when he says that, he's not saying that it's immoral. He's just saying it's amoral. It's, it's neither righteous nor evil. It's just, it, it doesn't have that moral attribute attached to it. It's just wealth. It's just money. But the thing is, you have an opportunity with it. If you take that unrighteous wealth, Jesus says there in verse 9, and you make friends for yourselves with it. What does that mean? Well, notice later he says, so that when it, the money, fails, they, who? The friends may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, he's telling his disciples, and by extension, telling us, that we are able to take our money here on earth during this age that we are in, and we are able to make friends for ourselves with that money who will receive us joyfully into uh, eternity. So this speaks of using our money for eternally significant things that in heaven uh, we might have friends as a result of the way that we spent our money uh, here uh, on uh, earth. So how would this play out? Well, you can imagine this so easily. You can imagine perhaps uh, believers from some distant country or 
uh, nation or village that you've never known, never personally have known these believers, but perhaps because of your financial investment in sending a missionary, God is able to track uh, who supported who to get the gospel into that location. Those people become believers, and, and obviously in this world, there's a high probability that they'll never meet you, never never know you, never discover you. But in heaven, that accounting is straightened out. And there will be those who say, thank you so much for the way that you spent in that life so that in that life, I could hear the gospel be saved. And now I receive you into eternity with great joy. And so it's just, a, it's a beautiful thing to think that God is able to account for every penny that is spent uh, in the expansion of the message of the gospel. So Jesus here is basically saying, use your present resources for eternal good. So often we spend our present resources on things of the present. But Jesus says, no, you can make for yourselves friends with your unrighteous mammon that will receive you into eternal dwellings. I think this is a powerful truth that if it really gets a hold of our hearts, will greatly impact the way that we spend, the way that we look at possessions, the way that we look at our bank accounts, to understand that we are simply stewards who will give an account like this steward for the way that we lived our lives. And to, to, to understand that there is something incredible that we can do with every unit of money that passes uh, through our fingertips. So just the potential eternally of unrighteous uh, money. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now here, Jesus makes an incredible uh, contrast. Uh, He talks about this life's riches by using words like little, unrighteous wealth, that which is another's, compared to eternal life's riches, which he describes as much, and the true riches, and that which is your own. I think that part of what the Lord is saying is that if a person in this life struggles with covetousness or financial superiority or inferiority, or by finding their security in money, then if that's the struggle in their lives, they will never attain to all that God has for their lives. We should make it a great aim of life to get our covetousness under control, to be good stewards financially, because when we are, God is then able to entrust into our care the true riches. I think in one sense, we could say it this way. If you want God to use your life, you must be a generous person. 
Sure, there is tithing, the giving of a tenth to the kingdom of God. I think that's a great uh, starting place for many believers. But generosity seems to be the order of the day as far as the New Testament is concerned. How can we look at the cross of Christ and not see in the cross the generosity of Jesus and, and desire to more and more be set free of the self so that we might in turn have a fraction of the generosity that uh, Jesus displayed. Jesus goes on to say concerning money that no servant, verse 13, can serve two masters. In other words, it's impossible to be owned and completely devoted to two masters. This is dissimilar to two part-time jobs. Obviously, people do that all the time. But to be completely dedicated and completely devoted to two separate masters is an absolute impossibility. Jesus said he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, Jesus said, God and money. In other words, you will only live sacrificially for one of them. Now, so many people are living sacrificially for money And it's a cruel master. It is a master that I think breaks us. But God is a master who makes us. So I think the error that we would make is to think that Jesus is giving a message here to the rich. But he's not. He's giving a message to humans. You don't have to be rich to make money your master. So keep your heart, Proverbs 4.23 says, with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. Now, in verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, "Who are you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, the Pharisees did love money. They, they thought that wealth was, was a sign of God's blessing. Jesus said, God knows what's happening inside your heart. He doesn't see, as everyone else sees, just the external uh, presence with your robes and your words and all of that. But he knows your hearts. And he says, you're justifying yourselves before men. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They'd been approved by people because of their wealth. But God was saying, your hearts are covetous and I see it. And so it's before God that our lives must be justified and theirs could not. Jesus then went on to say, The law and the prophets, verse 16, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus here says a few fascinating things. First of all, he says that from the the law and the prophets came until John, the ministry of John the Baptist. Really, John served as the dividing mark between the old and the new covenants. Jesus then says that At that time, since the time of John, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. 
Now, this is taken a couple of different ways by most people. One group thinks that there must be this sense of this desire to self-justify, to attempt to get there by works. And then others think that what Jesus is, is advocating for is an enthusiastic desire to get into uh, the kingdom of God. But notice that Jesus here, in talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he says the law is perfect. Heaven and earth will pass away. That's easier to have happen than for one dot of the law to become void. You see, the law is holy, Paul said in Romans 7 verse 12. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so there is, we would say, a a life that you could read about in the Old Testament that does carry forward into the New Testament uh, era. Obviously, the ceremonial uh, requirements of the people of Israel and their system of worship do not carry forward But one thing that does carry forward is that we would be faithful in marriage. That's why Jesus mentions what happens next. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another, he said, commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, the question that we would ask is, why did Jesus say that here? And it would seem to me, at least, that the reason that he points that out here is because the Pharisees were responsible for disregarding major portions of God's word uh, in their lives. And so Jesus, by saying this, is saying, listen, you need to take the word of God at face value. I think another question that we would have to ask is, is this all that Jesus ever said about divorce? And the answer, of course, is no. He did give some potential biblical justifications for divorce, especially and most notably sexual immorality. His apostle, Paul, seemed to talk about the abandonment of a non-believing spouse. But here, we might apply this text today by saying it's important for us as God's people, no matter what our mentality used to be, to ditch a divorce mentality. We don't want to perpetuate uh, that the rampant rate of divorce in this world. We would apply this also by protecting our marriage by trying to grow in our marriage, not just avoiding divorce, but thriving uh, in marriage. And then to, I think, repent of any sin that we may have committed in this area. And certainly in the culture that we live in, so many of us have not obeyed the word of God, but we've obeyed perhaps our own desires or the culture. And then I think another way we need to apply this is to receive the grace of God. If you have failed maritally, it's important to receive God's grace, to be forgiven uh, by the Lord. But a stern warning from Jesus, and he says, listen, the word of God still applies. No matter what the culture says, the law does not become void. Be easier for heaven and earth to pass away. Now, in verse 19, Jesus goes on and he begins to tell what many people call a parable, but he never calls it uh, a parable, but the story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And, you know, there's going to be a death for both of these characters. They're going to go to a place called Sheol or Hades or Abraham's bosom. Uh, Lazarus to the place of blessing and paradise and the rich man to a place of suffering. So we have a, a, 
question here at the beginning of this is, how are we to handle this section uh, in our minds? One way to handle it for some people is to consider it as entirely parabolic. In other words, there is no truth to be found in the Hades, uh, the way that it's represented or anything like that. But it's just a parable warning us about uh, generosity and things like that. Another way that people might take this is to say that Lazarus and the rich man are parabolic, but the way that Hades is described in the text is not. And certainly with the way Jesus talks about it, he doesn't do anything to lead us to believe that he's speaking parabolically. And then I think a third way to take this is to say that all of this is actual and literal, uh, that it's none of it is parabolic. Lazarus is a real figure. The rich man is a real figure uh, and, and all of that. Kind of the evidence that would push us in the direction of, the, of number two or three to say Lazarus and the rich man are parabolic, but Hades is not, or that all of it is non-parabolic, all of it is literal, is, is fourfold. Jesus never called this a parable. I already mentioned that. Number two, no other parable of Jesus's includes the naming of characters. And here you have Lazarus and, and, and then also uh, details, number three, are so vivid that they seem to have come from real legitimate knowledge. And if there was ever anyone who could speak about Sheol, Hades, Abraham's bosom with certainty, veracity, it'd be Jesus. And then fourthly, an Old Testament saint, Abraham, is going to be mentioned in this story. So that's sort of my leaning. I think that there are some things to learn about the afterlife on that side of the cross. I think it's not the same today because Jesus has risen from the dead and has been the first fruits from the dead for us. Uh, But there still is much uh, to learn. So there was a rich man, verse 19 who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The idea is he's living large, feasts sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So there's uh, a... Incredibly sad contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Jesus tells this story and your heart is supposed to melt for this poor man and be enraged at the wealthy man. The poor man, verse 22, died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Some, some literally translate that Abraham's bosom or place of cradling or place of comfort. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So the rich man, it's such a telling statement, also died. Everyone dies. The poor man, the rich man, no one can escape it. He was buried, however. That's an added statement. It doesn't say that Lazarus was buried, but the rich man had a big funeral. Uh, Everybody celebrated him, but their death was not the end. Lazarus was in a place of comfort. The rich man was in Hades. The word that's used is torment. He experienced pain. Notice that it says that he saw 
Abraham far off. He saw Lazarus at his side. Now, this is interesting for a few different reasons. First of all, Hades is often in the Bible translated hell. You notice a few things here about this eternal state for this man. He's conscious. He sees things. He knows things. He feels pain. His identity is intact. He knows who he is. He'll actually, in a moment, mention who his family is. He notices Abraham, and he notices Lazarus. Everyone has their identity intact. They could see each other. There were two compartments. Now, what is that all about? Well, patching scripture together with scripture, Isaiah 61, about Jesus going to uh, proclaim liberty to the captives, Ephesians 4, verse 9, Jesus descended before he ascended into the lower regions, the earth, Acts 2.27, Peter quoted Psalm 16 where Jesus said, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter again in 1 Peter 3 verse 18 saying that Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which, verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So what that leads many people to believe is that before the resurrection, when someone died, if they died condemned, they went to Hades. And if they died righteous, they were children of faith. Abraham actually is the father of faith. They died in faith, trusting in God. Then they went into the place of Abraham's bosom. But that Jesus, when he died on the cross, went and preached to everyone in that compartment and said, you're you're now set free. Uh, I'm ascending and you're going to be uh, in my uh, presence. So it seems that after the cross, Abraham's side or bosom was emptied. We know now to die in Christ today is to be present uh, with Jesus. Now, I believe that at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus, Hades, the negative side of things will be emptied and souls will be judged by the Lord uh, in that moment. And that will be the place of the second death or the time of the second death, Gehenna or uh, hell. So the man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice after all of this, he still thinks of Lazarus Lazarus as beneath him. Abraham, send Lazarus. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In other words, what he says to the man is, the decision that you made in your life is final. Now, I don't think that Abraham is announcing to him that Lazarus is in the place of comfort and blessing because he was impoverished, or that the rich man is in his place because in his early life he was wealthy. No, I think Lazarus is there because of faith. And I think that the rich man is there because of a lack of faith and because of the sin in his life. But the decision that we make in this life for the Lord or against the Lord is a final decision. There is no soul progression. There is no purgatory. There is no reincarnation. There is no annihilation. It is over. It is complete. 
and it is final. Just as God is eternal, just as our destiny as believers is final and eternal, so is the the destiny of those who choose against the Lord. This man obviously had great revelation, and he did not embrace and accept the Lord. He said, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Notice he's still conscious of his family, so that he, Lazarus, may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So what Abraham says in response is, look, we don't need to send Lazarus to your brothers. They have great revelation already in the form of the word of God. And when you really stop to think about the Bible, you understand that, yes, God has given the revelation of creation and conscience and Uh, His sovereign hand over the nations, Israel, for an example, their existence here on earth. But you have the revelation of the word of God. And and the man says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In its context, obviously, that someone would be Lazarus. But how can we not think of Jesus, who even after he rose from the dead, there were those who did not believe uh, in him. Uh, You might remember the literal, real Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, The chief priests made plans after he rose from the dead to put him to death. And so uh, I think in the entirety of this chapter, the question we would ask is, in what are we trusting? In our money? No, let us trust in Christ alone. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.